1 Corinthians 12, I just want to say another couple of things about the, about the ministry interest survey. There's a lot of ways that churches can structure themselves, and uh, because we are just three years old, it was a part of the plan from the very beginning that we would put in place elders by virtue of being raised up in this congregation. Secondly, we would seek to have deacons brought forth in this congregation. But the third step in the structure of this church was the design that we would have ministry teams. And those ministry teams are broken down according to worship, outreach, fellowship and care, and discipleship. Now, you'll notice if you're a reader that you just read the top of that page. If you, if you fill this out as a, as a member of Christ Pres, it doesn't mean you're signing up for something. It doesn't mean that that uh, you are actually getting responsibility. It simply means we want to know what, what you find as areas of interest. And what you'll see in the coming months and years is that we will structure this church under those four headings so that, so that things rise up from the body of believers are overseen by the elders. But this allows the, the Scripture to be true in among us. And that is that the Word of God is preached So that you, the people of God, are freed to do the works of ministry. We want to be able to see that happen. So, with that in mind, let's go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11 this morning. We're walking through Paul's letter. If this is the first or second time you've been with us, uh, you're picking up as we have transitioned in a point in the letter... So that the, the, the people who wrote a letter to Paul are receiving a response. And, and chapter 12 is, is actually a specific comment to a question they've asked. He's still, at this point, talking about things that concern him in their worship. But these, of course, are matters that they've asked him about. You have questions about spiritual gifts? Well, good. Here's what the Lord, the Lord says to his people. So, 1 Corinthians 12, beginning at verse 1. Now, concerning spiritual gifts... Brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit. To another gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another the working of miracles. To another prophecy. To another the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Holy Father, we ask that you would be willing to use a sinful, crooked stick like me to point the narrow way to Christ Jesus. And we ask, O Lord, that you would... Give your people ears that we might hear what your Spirit says to the church. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. 
What's the difference between the world's wise person and a follower of Jesus Christ who has been given a spiritual gift of wisdom? What's the difference between what the world sees as a knowledgeable person and a follower of Christ who's been given the spiritual gift of knowledge? What's the difference between a person who sees the world as a, as a positive way, they're called a positive person, and a follower of Jesus Christ who possesses the spiritual gift of faith? Well, it's not a flawless test, but one way is to simply ask, who gets the credit? Are the world's wise people interested in giving away credit for their wisdom? Who does our culture see as wise? Do you also see them stepping down and pointing to others? Or do you see them embrace the spotlight? Grab as much attention as they can possibly get. Is the world's knowledgeable person ready to point away from himself? Or is he not ready to absorb whatever accolades the world would lay upon him? Is the positive person in the world ready to explain his positive nature and write books about it and go on talking, speaking circuits to shine light upon their own positive disposition? Or are they turning it away? And so it seems the distinction, at least in part, is on the direction of their pointing. Those that the world recognizes as talented or gifted or special, more often than not, are happy to embrace the stairs even as they point to themselves. Now those who follow Christ, who've been given by God spiritual gifts, are left with a really different feeling. So if you possess a gift of wisdom or knowledge or faith, whatever your spiritual gift is, you probably do not feel comfortable taking credit for the gift. And so when you get to chapter 12 in 1 Corinthians you notice that the same core issues keep coming up. What does it mean to be spiritual? Do my spiritual gifts somehow affirm me as useful in the congregation? Do they endow me with honor over other people? Do I get credit for them? And into that confusion, the Apostle Paul says, no. He says the Spirit and His gifts always point to Christ. And so this passage can be broken down, I think, in two main points. The first is the Lord Jesus, and the second is the common good. The spiritual gifts have have really always been a hot-button issue in the church for centuries. I was surprised when I arrived in Auburn. I shouldn't have been. But spiritual gifts were one of the first things that students began to ask me about. It seemed to be of interest. Well, that shouldn't be a surprise. Because matters of spiritual gifting have always been a key issue in the church. They've actually always been a source of confusion. They're also one of the places where false teaching springs up in the church. And why wouldn't they be a good place for false teaching to spring up in the church? It's been said that spiritual gifts are given by God's people to build up the church and to point to Jesus Christ. And if Satan could slightly tweak that. Slightly skew how they are understood. Then he would go a long way in keeping people from looking at the Savior, Jesus Christ. In getting them to exalt themselves instead of the Lord. Well, there was no less confusion in Corinth. 
But God doesn't intend his worship to be complicated. He doesn't intend it to be confusing. He intends to give his word and make it clear to inform us about spiritual realities that we may not understand. Take a look at verse 1. Concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. It's a really warm start to a pressing issue. He calls them brothers. Have you been with us since 1 Corinthians chapter 1? That's actually where he began in this same letter. 1 Corinthians 1, 4. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in speech and all knowledge so that you were not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is going to sustain you till the end guiltless. Now you see, here's what's happened. From the very beginning, the Apostle Paul has been writing with an eye to the fact that spiritual gifts are a question. And he clarifies these spiritual gifts. God has saved you through Jesus Christ. And because He saved you from your sins, He's given you these spiritual gifts. Gifts that go along with salvation and they're often developed and grown through your own process of growing in grace. And he starts by reminding them who they were outside of Christ. Look at verse 2. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. However you were led. In whatever way you were led, you were repeatedly led. That's what the grammar tells us. And it's actually a pathetic picture. The phrase, we're led astray, is a phrase that's used to describe chained prisoners. Those who do not know Christ are not free. They aren't intellectually choosing the idols slash the gods, lowercase g, that they want to worship. They are chained. They are constrained to follow dumb idols that will not answer when you call upon them. In pagan ritual, the little idol sits up on the counter. He's wood or metal. And you go before him and you call out to him and he can't talk back. And so, the worshiper babbles. Supposedly some inspired utterances. Your God can't talk. He surely can't listen. What an irony of distance. As you chatter aimlessly in hopes of being heard, you cry out, your God does not hear you. Not so with Yahweh. Not so with the God of heaven. In Christ, God hears you. Psalm 4, 3, the Lord hears when I call to Him. Psalm 34, 17, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them. Proverbs 15, 29, the Lord is far from the wicked, but He hears the prayer of of the righteous. Your God hears, but He also speaks. He is not mute as the pagan idols. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, God said, let there be light, and there was light. God said, let us make man in our own image. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's still speaking. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, All Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable 
for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Yahweh hears and Yahweh speaks. But He does not speak through random babblings. He speaks in word that can be understood and and interpreted by the help of the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. No prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So one writer said the concept of word apart from spirit is totally foreign in the Scriptures. It's always word and spirit, and it's always an unbreakable bond. For the people of Corinth, the confusion about spiritual gifts is rooted in their pagan past. I appreciate so much how one scholar explained it. He actually says that the reason they're doing what they're doing in Corinth is this. It was universally accepted in antiquity that those in close touch with the divine had special spiritual endowments. At times they behaved in unpredictable ways. They threw themselves about. They spoke in a frenzied manner and so on. And their enthusiasm was the mark of the presence of the divine spirit that they supposedly worshipped. Imagine how brand new believers interpreted things like Pentecost. With spoken languages that the speaker didn't actually understand. Well, surely tongues. That's an extraordinary gift of the Holy Spirit. Surely that evidence is a deeply spiritual person. But that's not the real mark. That's what Paul's been saying for the last 11 chapters. He wants to reset the view of what makes someone spiritual. And so what we find out here about spiritual gifts is consistent with everything else he said throughout the whole letter. The spiritual person points to Christ in their life and in their behavior. And the spiritual person cares about the church. Galatians 5 is is a picture of what it looks like when the reign of the Holy Spirit conquers your flesh. The Spirit grows where you once were ensnared in sin and He produces qualities like love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and kindness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And if you know someone who has been transformed by the working of the Spirit, you go, that's completely supernatural. My old Chevy Blazer got stuck in the mud in 1992. And I had come to faith that summer before. And I didn't get out of the truck and scream and yell and curse and kick the tires. And my friend, who was a believer, said, I don't know what's happened, but you're a different guy. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's actually what it looks like. That's far more profound than babblings that mean nothing and can't be understood. 
Verse 3, therefore I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. There's tons of different views on this verse. I'm pretty convinced that he's, he's actually speaking hypothetically in order to make a point. A spiritual person is known by what he or she confesses, what he or she declares. It's possible, of course, isn't it, for somebody to mockingly say, oh yeah, Jesus is Lord. But no one can truly declare that Jesus is Lord unless they're under the reign of the Holy Spirit. And so a person who doesn't know Jesus Christ will not naturally come to the conclusion in their intellect or by some emotional discovery, Jesus is clearly the Lord. I've figured it out. The concept that Jesus is Lord is a movement of the Spirit in the heart. I want you to think of Peter. Matthew chapter 16. Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? The disciples are like, well, some people say you're John the Baptist. Some people say you're Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus Answers him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And on that declaration, God built his church. And on that confession, God continues to build his church. So that every gift that the Holy Spirit is, gives is meant to be used by the believer and every gift must always point to the Lord Jesus Christ. Every utterance of faith, whether you cry out to God internally or externally, every utterance directed to God will always exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. So this passage actually lays before us two tests for how to evaluate spiritual gifts. And these two tests, I believe, are really useful as we proceed through chapter 12, 13, and 14. Test number one, who receives the exaltation from your use of your spiritual gift? Is it the Lord Jesus Christ or is it you? Do I take pride in telling other people about my gift? Now, that could be a sign that you don't actually possess that gift could also be a sign that you're just not simply interested in using the gift the way the Lord intended. Second, so also you want to recognize that this first test comes from a strong current in the church culture in this country. And that current sounds like this. You need to go figure out what your spiritual gift is in order to ever be useful in the church. Now, for the sake of the younger people in the church, this is the, this is the same misunderstanding that happens regarding life purpose. You don't have to go and try to figure out your life purpose. And the reason you don't have to go, try to go figure out what your life purpose is, is because you are called to glorify God. And you can do that in lots of varieties of ways. Lots of varieties of jobs, lots of varieties of service. God's will is your sanctification, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But likewise, your spiritual gifts are not some mystery that have to be figured out. 
You don't have to take a spiritual gifts inventory to find your gifts. Those can be helpful. But if Christ is the one that you want to exalt, then you can actually begin much more simply. What are the current needs in my church? At times, it may be irrelevant whether you feel gifted to pick up the wires and wrap them up and help put them away. There might just be a need for pickup. At other times, it might not be so relevant whether you feel gifted to say hello to people, either those who are visitors or those who are members in the church. It might simply be that we desire that the church should be a warm, winsome, inviting place for God's people. Likewise, it might not be so relevant whether you feel profoundly gifted to work in the nursery. I understand there's some people that do not have any business being around children. But for the most part, the children of this church need someone who would lovingly care for them while mom and dad are in worship. The parents of this church need some help. You even pledge to help. So in some cases, it's not a spiritual gifting. It's really just willingness. Those of you who've been in this church since the beginning have done a lot of things that were really far outside your gifts and maybe even your interest. But you saw a need, and that's actually been profoundly encouraging for me to watch. Now, if we want to get more technical, and this is what I think spiritual gifts inventories usually do, they begin with this question, what is it that you enjoy doing? Well, I enjoy, I enjoy lifting weights. I enjoy long walks on the beach, basketball games with friends. That's not what I'm asking. What do you enjoy doing inside the walls of church or for God's people? And then that needs to be coupled with another idea. What do others in the body of Christ affirm you for doing? And then moreover than that, Do the elders likewise affirm what others are saying and what you internally desire to do? One pastor teaching on this text said it hurts the church when people pursue tasks without having a gift for it. You don't want me in charge of the membership directory. Clearly, it took multiple years at the start of this church for you all to be able to get in touch with each other because I don't have any gifting in that way. You also don't want me fixing the widow's car. I can't fix it. And that's not going to go well. Betsy was about 65 years old. She'd been serving for about 30 years in the children's ministry of her church. And the church was was filled with children who had been blessed by Betsy's ministry to them. But Betsy really wanted to teach adult women. And yet, to Betsy's sadness, the adult women didn't seem to affirm that gift. Someone needs to go to Betsy, and they need to encourage her. Betsy, you are profoundly gifted by God to minister to children. And every time you use that gift, you are pointing to Jesus Christ. 
And all of these little ones in this church, this string of of, of 40s and 50s and 60-year-old children have been blessed because you chose to use the gift that the Lord had given you to teach. Somebody should say to Betsy, please do not be sad that the Lord is so profoundly using you in the lives of these little ones. You're pointing them to Jesus. And so if everywhere in the scriptures, the Holy Spirit points to Jesus and everywhere in the church, the spirit gives these gifts to God's people, then those gifts also need to likewise be used to point to Jesus. The spirit and his gifts always point to Christ, the Lord Jesus, and now the common good. One pastor connects verses one through three with verses four through seven by saying this. You can't understand spiritual gifts without understanding spiritual things. You can't understand spiritual things without saying Jesus is Lord and the church is his body. Take a look at verse 4. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. The church reflects the glory of the Godhead in this way. Unity in being. Diversity in function. Same Spirit, same Lord, same God. Varieties. Varieties of gifts, varieties of service, varieties of activities. Now he's talking about activities that take place in the church. Varieties, and they all come from the same source. Just as God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit... And those three persons have a diverse function, so also the church exists in many persons and has diverse functions. A unified heart under the Lord Jesus Christ. Why did God give his church these different gifts to different people? Look at verse 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. This is the second test. For how you evaluate spiritual gifts. Test one. Who receives the exaltation from your use of your spiritual gift? Is it Jesus or is it you? Second test. Is my gift being used for the common good of those in the church? All gifts come from the same source. That is God. And they are all meant for the same purpose. That is the common good and the service of the church. Now, one of the reasons that church membership matters is that God has gifted his people with spiritual gifts. And those spiritual gifts which flow from him are meant to edify the entire body. Not one single person alone. To state this in the opposite way. There's no such thing as a spiritual gift which was ever meant to edify you alone. That's completely different from the modern Pentecostal movement and what it teaches, both in this city and in this state and in this country. In the Bible, it's a completely unknown concept to pray to receive an extraordinary gift of the Spirit so that you can use it in private, like talk to God in your own private language. First, the Bible 
doesn't have any concept of a private language. And your relationship with Jesus is never simply isolated between you and him. You are joined to one whole body. Secondly, if you pray in your closet in a tongue, and you think that it is a spiritual gift, how is that to be used to edify the whole body of Christ? Well, I'd I'd tell other people about it. Well, then who would that be exalting? And who would that be edifying? You and you. Well, then I could tell other people what God had revealed to me. Well, then that's a far bigger claim altogether. For in that you are saying that God has revealed to you something that wasn't already written down in his word. Puritan John Owen says, If private revelations agree with scriptures, they are needless. If they disagree, they are false. Where does John Owen get that concept? He reads Revelation chapter 22, verse 18. Everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of this book, of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life. It's a massive deal to claim to have a word from God that goes beyond what the scripture has already said. Now, verses 8 through 11 is one of the several places in the New Testament where various spiritual gifts are listed. And, and Paul's going to come back later in verse 28 and add to the list. He also gives another list in Romans chapter 12 and Ephesians chapter 4. I suspect that, that many of you have heard sermons where the pastor went down through the list and he explained those various gifts, what they probably mean, what they probably don't mean. I want to be clear that the thrust of this passage is not a puzzle. A puzzle wherein modern readers can't figure out what kind of gifts are possible in the church. How do we understand these verses? Look at verse 7. We understand the, the term common good. And then you notice that everything else that's listed is meant to reinforce the common good. A variety of gifts under the unified body of Christ. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom. To another the utterance of knowledge according to that same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit. To another gifts by the same Spirit. To another the working of miracles. To another prophecy. To another the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another various kinds of tongues. To another the interpretation of tongues. And all of these are to be understood under verse 11. These are empowered by one in the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So commentators spill a ton of ink trying to figure out what these gifts are and what they were in their original giving. And one of the things that they most always and only agree on is that no one is totally sure in this list. 4th century bishop of Constantinople, John Chrysostom, said the exact same thing. We don't exactly know. And yet in coming weeks, we are going to discuss specific gifts in greater detail. 
But this passage is making two simple points. Because the Holy Spirit's purpose is to exalt Christ, we must expect that His gifts given to His people are also meant to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. That's point one. Point two. Because the Holy Spirit is sent for the building up of God's church, we must expect that the gifts given to the people who are of God's church will build up God's church. The Holy Spirit exalts the head who is Christ. The Holy Spirit builds up the body which is the church. I wonder if you can see what Paul keeps doing. Every single issue. And this entire letter is a gospel issue. And he keeps solving the, the issue by asking you to look back at Christ. To overlay the reflection of Jesus Christ over that specific issue. So that even when he doesn't express it explicitly, you can always take Jesus and lay him over top of the issue and ask, how should the Christian respond? Well, does it reflect Christ's sacrifice? Jesus' sacrifice brings glory to God. So my gifts should bring glory to God. Jesus' sacrifice is for the common good of all believers. And so my gifts, when exercised, should be for the common good of all believers. The Spirit and His gifts always point to Christ. Let's pray.